On Monday, October 11th, David Card, a labor economist and a professor of economics at UC Berkeley, won the 2021 Nobel Memorial Prize in Economic Sciences. He won for the work that he started in the 1990s on the economics of the minimum wage, immigration, and education. These are high-profile issues, always at the center of policy conflicts in the United States. Card was awarded half the prize. The other half was shared by economists Joshua Angrist of MIT and Guido Imbens of Stanford University. In 1995, Card and his colleague Alan Kruger of Princeton University published the book, Myth and Measurement, The New Economics of the Minimum Wage. That same year, Card won the Clark Prize from the American Economic Association. The prize is given to economists under the age of 40 who make major contributions to the field. It's very prestigious. This is Berkeley Voices. I'm Ann Bryce. Today I'm joined by a colleague of mine, Edward Lempinen. He is a writer in UC Berkeley's Office of Communications and Public Affairs. He covers economics and public policy, among several other topics. Hi, Ed. Thanks for joining me today on Berkeley Voices. Hi, Ann. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. So you have been talking to Professor Card a lot this past week. And I'm wondering if you have learned anything about him and his work that has surprised you. I think that there are a couple of things, Anne, that are really striking in uh, David Card's story. Uh, The most important of which I think is that he really transformed the field of economic research. Working with Alan Kruger, his colleague from Princeton, perhaps a few other economists in the 80s and 90s, they really changed how economic research is done and how we understand the real life dynamics of economics. Uh, but the thing you have to understand is that when you you are a young person or early in your career and you come in and you challenge the status quo, you're going to generate controversy and you're going to generate resistance. You know, in music, when when the Beatles came in, people who used to listen to, to Glenn Miller and Frank Sinatra were upset. Um, in journalism, you know, when you had a conventional model of journalism and then Hunter Thompson came in, people were upset. But he changed the framework. He, he shifted the paradigm. So in, in the same thing is, happened in economics in the 1990s. You had a group of mainstream, uh, conventional economists, very accomplished, who had been working the same way for decades, really. And their way was to use the, their own acumen and their own uh, imaginations to develop models of economic uh, dynamics. But it wasn't much related to data, and it wasn't much related to actual experience. So here comes David Card, and here comes Alan Kruger, and they say, no, the minimum wage? Well, we need data. We can't just assume that um, higher wages cause a reduction in hiring. Immigration? Wait, we need data. We can't just assume that immigration, you know, causes an, a negative economic impact. So they challenged conventional wisdom and they overturned it. And that was very controversial. And the controversy lingers. One thing that struck me during the interview was how humble he is. 
how the Nobel Prize, which is a huge honor, it's it's special to him, but it doesn't really he doesn't think it's going to change his life. It doesn't it's not like, OK, I've done this, like I've accomplished the ultimate. Um, and so I'm curious what your experience with that has been. Well, it, it, you make a really good point, Anne. His his humility is he takes it to the next level. It's a, it's almost as if he doesn't think he should be talking about himself, and and he's almost uneasy with the recognition that the Nobel Prize, the the Clark Prize, and other honors uh, bring him. He'd rather talk about. Um, his students. Clearly, he'd rather talk about the ideas and the work and how economics works and how economics education works. Um, but it, it should be pointed out here as part, of, as part of this consideration. He is enormously popular among his colleagues, among graduate students, students in the department. He's, he's admired um, and, and, and there's a great deal of affection for him. In his, in his department. And uh, one of his colleagues told me that really you should see that he has so many students whose lives he's touched. It, it's as if he's created a global network of economists who are at least schooled in these more modern ideas, even if they don't always agree with, with him. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah. His influence, I think, it's not just the research, but it's the the education that he's provided to so many students. All right. Should we get into it? Sure. All right. Here is your interview with the 2021 Nobel Prize winner, David Card. Let me start with a, a, um, a lighter question, perhaps. You've, you've had a little bit of time now to absorb the announcement of the Nobel Prize. Um, I wonder how you would describe your reaction at this point. How are you feeling about it? Um, well, I think the something I realized is that um, most people outside of economics, people like in the media or um, just general people, um, the Nobel Prize has an incredible importance for some reason that I don't fully understand. I guess what's going on is – there's only a, a very limited attention span. I, I, now that I think about it, I guess this must be true for all these Nobel Prizes. And so there's all kinds of interesting work going on in many different areas. You know, For example, literature. Right? Think of the Nobel Prize in literature. It, it's completely insane. There's so many great authors. And they chose one at random every year or almost at random every year. Um, and I'm, me getting selected for this prize is kind of at random um, in my view. Essentially what it does is um, – Provide, it does have a, a positive effect on people like my mother. She never really looked at the internet on, you know, uh, to see that there were, you know, that I had citations for my research or anything like that. Um, or your, my friends from high school, um, who, um, you know, been in touch the last couple of days. Some of them I've kept up with, but others not, but most of them don't really kind of know what you do. And so the same thing happens with many of my former PhD students. They all send me an email and say, well, you can't believe this, but somebody came up to me in the street, blah, blah, blah. You know, So they get some positive spillover on all this. So all the people that you were attached to um, get some some sort of spillover on this. Uh, that's pretty interesting. So you realize it's 
a big benefit to your entire extended circle of friends in some ways that is actually hard to figure out why. But that's the main thing that I've taken away from it. Uh, very interesting. Your work today is, is credited with transforming methodology or really impacting methodology so that there's less focus on, um, on theory and more focus on data and, and uh, experience. And so I wonder, was there a moment in your career where you thought, you know, these old systems of economics and eco- economic thought are too limited and, and there's a better way to do this and we're going to try and do it. Was there such a moment? Um, well, my, my interest has always been not so much on, you know, the, the theoretical folk framework or focus, although that, that is extremely important and interesting, um, but rather on um, really kind of nuts and bolts thing of, okay, we think we understand some view of the labor market, or in many cases, there's actually competing paradigms. And sometimes the differences between these paradigms may seem extremely small, but fundamentally they have very different um, implications for one thing or another. Um, An example of this is, um, you know, I I think it's exaggerating how great economics is to say this is similar to something going on in physics or chemistry, but that was always kind of my... um, hope that we could make economics a little bit more like physics. I was, I spent several years as a physics major before I went into economics. And, you know, in, in physics, there's people who are experimentalists and there's people who are theorists and experimentalists are widely respected. And they, people think, okay, that's a, that's a real thing. You know, you're an experimental physicist. That's, that's a legitimate profession. At the time that I was started out in economics, there wasn't really equivalent in economics. And maybe one thing that's happened is that, there's sort of an equivalent. Now it's perfectly okay to be an economist who doesn't innovate and develop new theoretical models. What you do is try and test between alternative existing theoretical models. You've alluded to the fact that the findings were controversial. And I wonder if you can um, describe the controversy that emerged at the time. And, and I wonder whether you were surprised by it. You'll hear people say something like, there is a law of demand. And that that's one of the fundamental ideas in economics. Now, the so-called law of demand is a mathematical proposition. Um, I think it was probably formalized in the 1890s through 1910s and, you know, fully understood and formalized, you know, completely in the 1930s by a British economist named John Hicks, uh, kind of worked it all out. This is a model that describes how an employer reacts when the employer is in a, is in that situation which I called model 1. The employer is facing a labor market where there's a market wage, $13 an hour can hire all the workers it wants at $13 an hour. Uh, all the workers are the same, doesn't, you know, there's no advantage to hire to paying 13.50, you would never do that because you get the same workers. So you pay 13, you get them, you pay 12.50, you get nobody. So in that model, there's a strong prediction that if you say, okay, now this employer has to pay $14 an hour, they will potentially reduce, but they would never increase the number of employees they hired. That's the law of demand. Model two says if there's an employer out there that's having trouble recruiting, 
and has uh, help wanted signs and a recruitment bonus. And you said to that employer, why don't you raise their wage? And they would say, well, if I raise my wage, to tell you the truth, I'd have to pay more for the people I already have. That's going to cost me quite a bit. And I might get a few extra workers. Might not be worth it. That's model two. And if you force that employer to raise his wage, he will definitely increase employment, at least initially. So that's why we studied it, because we thought it would be interesting to compare those two. Okay, now model one is a, just a, it's an extraordinarily restrictive set of assumptions. For some reason, a huge number of economists think that if you don't believe in model one, like literally believe in model one as if it was a religious proposition, you're not an economist. You must be something like a left-wing lunatic or possibly a communist or, you know, virtually anything. And that's still to some extent true. And so that group was was really outraged by uh, by the recognition our work got, the fact that, that it was published in the American Economic Review, the fact that the AEA then, you know, eventually decided to give me the Clark Prize. And um, um, the, there's a pretty strong, you know, written track record of very nasty things that they said. Uh, I'll give you an example. So at the American Economic Association meetings where I was to receive the Clark Prize, the president of the AEA had been under harsh criticism for the AEA giving me this prize. And so a bunch of more conservative types said, well, we've got to have a forum where we can have a discussion about minimum wages at the same meeting so that it can be you know, revealed what a charlatan card is and his work, how bad his work is. And so they set up a... Um, you know, one of the sessions at the AA meetings. And uh, there was uh, me um, and then about five people writing papers, you know, outrageously bad papers, by the way, it turned out. So I had to kind of sit through that. It's not like you have, you know, no, there wasn't so much public defense. When you're being criticized at economics, it's kind of you're on your own. <laughs> it's the opposite of the Nobel Prize. <laughs> Uh, so I've been on both sides of this, I guess you could say. You know, at that time, quite a few people, not just extreme right-wingers, but pretty much the mainstream of the profession was kind of skeptical about minimum wages. Uh, I, I, I keep a record of every time somebody writes something about minimum wages that I think is inconsistent with the facts. And it's surprising. I mean, many of my colleagues have written things like that even recently. Because they, they, they don't think about the labor market from the point of view of actually having participated in it. <laughs> they think about it from what they were taught in Economics 1 30 years ago. And so back at that time, when you were mid-career, how did you respond to the controversy? Did it shock you? Did it... Um what what um, you? Uh, it was pretty disappointing, actually. I, my first job was at the University of Chicago, um, and uh, so around and, and I was there for a year, and I met a bunch of people, many of the famous people that are, are in the somewhat affiliated with the labor economics field, and a few of the younger people that then went on and became well known. And I, I went back and gave a seminar there around 1992, and it, it was a very hostile environment. Um, and um, it was kind of disappointing because it wasn't really like anybody wanted to like have a real discussion about okay how does the labor market work and what does this show they they really felt threatened by these findings it, it, it somehow said well you know the I mean I guess it's it's like lots of other things that you hear about 
Um, if you've spent much of your life working with a certain class of models, especially people that do modeling work and are deeply familiar with that, then that's a, you know, something you understand and you're familiar with and happy with, and you can guess how it's going to work before you start. You know, people that are good at math, it's amazing how much they can figure out how an equation is going to look when it's, when it's finally solved out, even before they start. So they, you develop all of that. And then somebody comes along and says, well, actually, you're going to have to change your model. Or maybe you want to think about changing your model for certain certain kind of cases, but what what really happens is the the younger people change their model, the older people kind of keep going. <laughs> and you know, many many people will tell you that you don't win very many converts or people that want to rethink things, um, who are you know beyond I don't know age thirty maybe. Um, but you do eventually, if you're lucky enough to have your work presented to the younger people. And partially it's because younger people need new challenges and need new things to work on. And uh, what happened after, after our work was not much for about 10 years. And then maybe starting in the two thousands, maybe even as late as 2010, but some maybe two Oh five or so people started to go back and look at other minimum wage episodes. And it, that literature really then kind of took off. And then at the same time, um, other countries got involved with raising minimum wages or introducing minimum wages. So anyway, one thing that happened is Alan and I, after all of this and our book come out and stuff, we said, you know, there's if we do one more paper on minimum wages, people are just going to trash us and think that we're following an ideological thing. It, by the way, if you read our book or any of our papers, we never, ever once said we should raise the minimum wage or that the optimal minimum wage is X or anything like that. We said, you know, there's pluses and minuses. There's people who benefit. There's people who lose from the minimum wage. It's kind of surprising how vitriolic the discussion is. We we didn't take a policy position on that. I don't take policy positions on anything. You'll notice people ask me questions, and I always evade them. <laughs> I don't feel it's, it's really my place to take a position on normative questions. Um, but is it your is, – is it your – when you're formulating the question, is there um, a desire colored by policy interests or interests of justice and saying, well, you know, minimum wage is really important. It affects a lot of people. It's, it's um, a source or a locus for injustice. And therefore, let's ask this question without making any recommendations. Is that how the question is to some degree formulated? No, I'm... So I, I guess this seems very odd to people, but in my view, I mean, Keynes said something in, in, in some of his writing about the importance of economic ideas, you know, that you, if you really want to change things, you have to basically change the way the economic ideas are formulated. And so I, I believe that it, to the extent that if it had any influence or, or would hope to have any influence, it's, it's not going to be by standing up and saying we need to raise the minimum wage that that isn't going to help and in fact that's going to hurt because it's going to damage my reputation as a researcher because people are going to think well you know this guy basically has an opinion blah 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 is just an advocate so instead if you really think that there's something wrong with the way we're modeling this and if we model it a different way we would reach a different conclusion if you really think that then you should go out and try and find evidence for that and find out what it is that current thinking has got wrong and if try and push the direction of research in, a, in another direction 
to to me, it seems like if you really want to change things in the long run, there's plenty of advocates. A lot of people are comfortable being advocates. You know, attorneys are trained to be advocates. That's the whole profession. Um, I, I, I don't really see the attraction of that profession, but lots of people do. There's way more attorneys than economists. I wonder, is there a, is there a message in your experience and in the controversies you, you endured? Is there a message that early career researchers can learn from today? I think that economics is a little more open-minded than it used to be. I, I hope so. Um, it's certainly more open to empirical evidence than it used to be. There was a famous economist at at, um, at Harvard, Robert Barrow, who said, well, it doesn't really matter as long as they spell your name right. <laughs> so there's there's some one element there. Um because it's, you know, controversy or attention may be helpful or may get people f- taking a look at the work and re- evaluating it. Um, right now, you know, there's economics is quite a competitive field. It's very difficult to get into grad school in economics. Probably one of the hardest fields to get into. We have amongst the mo- the toughest publication standards in the, the the top journals in economics have like three three percent acceptance rate for papers. So people have to have a kind of a long view and say, okay, I'm going to work for, I'm going to try and produce really high quality work and hope that that will be recognized. I, I, I believe that that has worked out for me, but I, and I hope it would work out for, for younger people today as well. Let me ask you one last question. I'll let you go. Do you think winning the Nobel is going to change your life? No, I don't think so. I mean, um, I guess what was going to happen is, so previously when I would, would I be introduced or something, they would always say, you know, uh, blah, 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 and won the Clark Prize in 1995. Um, but since 1995 was such a long time ago, it was that was becoming a little less salient. So now I'm a, I'm a little bit updated. But I don't, you know, fundamentally, I, I, I mean, I actually got to get to work on a, I'm meeting with my a team of co-authors tomorrow morning, and I'm behind on my delivery of my part of the of the work product we were supposed to be doing this week. So I think I I don't think it's going to change very much. Um, no. This is Berkeley Voices, a Berkeley News podcast. I'm Ann Bryce. You can subscribe to Berkeley Voices and give us a rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. Look for new episodes every other Friday. You can find all of our podcast episodes with transcripts and photos on Berkeley News at news.berkeley.edu slash podcasts. <laughs>